Welcome to the EP Edit. This is a podcast dedicated to topics of interest in the field of cardiac electrophysiology. In this episode, we are highlighting the next session of the Great Debates and Updates in Electrophysiology Conference. Course co-directors Dr. Brad Knight and Dr. Raul Weiss will be discussing management strategies for ventricular arrhythmias and heart failure, which will be the focus of the November session. Welcome, I'm Brad Knight, Director of Cardiac Electrophysiology at Northwestern, actually starting my 14th year here at Northwestern, also the Editor-in-Chief of EP Lab Digest, and I'm very excited to be joined by, by my friend, co-fellow, former co-fellow and colleague, Dr. Raul Weiss. Raul? Hey, hi, Brad. As always, great being with you. Looking forward to this conversation. I'm in electrophysiology here at Ohio State University. Also getting into my 16th year here at Ohio State, and I'm the director of the Electrophysiology Fellowship Program here. Well, the goal tonight is to talk a little bit about implantable defibrillator therapy, how it's evolved over time from the transvenous to the subcutaneous defibrillator. And we are going to have our next great debates and updates on November 10th from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern time, so starting at 6 p.m. here in Chicago. Raul, you and I were fellows together in the mid-90s and saw the remarkable development of the transvenous implantable defibrillator. I remember when these were first done with patches and open-heart surgery, and it was quite a big deal to have an implantable defibrillator. And then the transvenous leads allowed those to be taken out of the OR and be performed in the EP lab. I remember doing a lot of early defibrillation work with Dr. Adam Strickberger at the University of Michigan. Tell me what you remember about those early years. You know, in- Number one, what I remember, I don't want to go back to those years of defibrillation. You know, it was a really was pretty early on. It was very to the point that even made it was a, made it one was an out that, as you know, was the first primary prevention defibrillator trial that was only 196 patients in 197 patients in 1996, and then that's when defibrillation, I think, took off. At that point, we were doing EP study, and the EP study, the patient continued to be inducible for ventricular arrhythmia. Then we will implant a defibrillator if they were not suppressed by any antiarrhythmic medication. But what was important, I think, first, that many of the defibrillator was placed in the operating room, so it was not in the, the electrophysiology lab. So we were a little bit out of our element there. It was not until, as you mentioned, Adam Strickberger published the first trial that implanting the defibrillator in the EP lab was equal time and safety as doing in the operating room. But it's also important to note that at that point, we also move from epicardial leads that the surgeons have to implant to transvenous lead. So we saw an evolution of both the technology and the indications as you spoke of. I think you had to have survived two cardiac arrests to have an implantable defibrillator in the late 80s. And the initial indications were all secondary prevention. And you talked about made it and all the primary prevention indications that evolved. And we saw some amazing developments in the technology. I think the first transvenous leads we implanted were a 16 French sheath. And we tunnel the lead down into the abdomen. 
And I remember we did a lot of defibrillation testing because the reliability was not as high. Do you recall what the defibrillation protocols yeah. were back then? I remember exactly. You know, we will start. Let me first say, yeah, you're right. The lead was a very thick lead that we put it in the right ventricle. That lead will never move and then tunnel all the way down to the abdomen. And at that point, Actually, the can was not a hot can, so we would defibrillate between two coils on the defibrillator. It wasn't until we moved the defibrillator to the chest and we had biphasic waveform that defibrillation became more reliable. But I remember going all the way to failure. So we would start at 25 joules, go to 20, 15, 12, 10, 8, six, four, two, and actually we will go to one and even sub one. Sometimes yeah. we will defibrillate 15 or 20 times the same patient. So not just that, after the implant, we will bring them in six weeks yeah. and check defibrillation. And then I think every again. year, every year. Yeah. So you mentioned the developments of biphasic defibrillation, the hot can that allowed us to not have an SVC coil, which was a big deal. We all know that the hazards of an SVC coil in terms of extraction. But I think the average DFT, I think our fellows are surprised when I tell them it's only six joules because it's yeah. really not that high. It's just that there are outliers and that's why we used to test. But we used to test down to failure because if the DFT was were two joules, then you would set it to four joules. The DFT, you know, it was either twice or plus 10, which was ever lowest because mm. charge times mattered. So if you gave a four joule shock for VF rather than a 30 joule shock, that could mean a 20 second difference in charge time and sometimes efficacy. So we felt like we were doing the right thing with performing all these step downs to failure defibrillation testing and made a lot of revisions and did a lot of things for patients to get the defibrillators to work. But you, you must recognize that despite all the powerful data that these devices make patients live longer and are very effective at defibrillating, there are problems with the transvenous leads, even in the recent years. Tell me what you think the limitations are of a transvenous ICD lead. I think that certainly there are trade-offs and there are limitations, as you say. And in my view, the main limitation to the transvenous lead it's the invasiveness into the intravascular space. And the fact that if you get infections that become an endocarditis, have a blood-borne infection, that certainly with the extravascular or the transvenous defibrillators, you don't have that. Also, the risk profile of implanting a transvenous subcutaneous defibrillator, it's lower than implanting a transvenous defibrillator. Yeah. So other than bleeding and infection with the subcutaneous, you don't get the risk of perforation of the heart, the risk of complete heart block. If you inadvertently with the lead goes into the right bundle or yeah. pneumothorax. Acute risks of transvenous lead implants, and then there's a long-term risks. And although I stopped doing lead extractions about four or five years ago, I have been doing them for a long time. And saw some of the very difficult issues related to lead extractions. And I know you've been involved in a lot of lead extractions. Still doing them. And certainly, you know, in, I think one of the reasons why subcutaneous defibrillators 
were more successful than they would have been otherwise, it's because it happened at the time that there was two big recalls from two manufacturer leads. So at the yeah. same time, transvenous leads were getting a bad rep. Yeah. At exact same time, the transvenous, the subcutaneous defibrillator came out. Timing of the Fidelis and the Riata lead recalls had a big, I think, impact on the interest in the subcutaneous device. Yeah, yeah I, I think that that's actually, it was a very positive step, subcutaneous defibrillator to take off. Yeah. What are some of the most difficult transvenous lead issues you've seen? Sometimes you, you get certain patients that sensing it's not good anywhere. So when you, that, that's what you're referring to? Yeah, you know, just, it, uh, cases that you remember that are terrible issues for patients related to transvenous leads. There are certain things that I think can happen. Sometimes you get a, one of the things that sometimes you have, it's a patients who have occluded a venous system and you need to use it to dilate the vein or after you got in, you need to go to the other side to put the defibrillator on the contralateral yeah. side. You, because you run the risk of having a, a pneumothorax when you try a few times to get access. I'm talking a little bit more in the past because we use different techniques to get into the vein now. And you have to go to the contralateral side, to the right side. You don't want to do, do it the same day because you have the risk of having a bilateral pneumothorax. So we usually err in the side of cautiousness and we send the patient to the room and bring the patient the following day. So yeah. vascular access, sometime in particular in patients with renal failure, for example. Um, yeah. The other thing is patients with persistent left superior vena cava. That doesn't happen that often, but it does happen. I think some of the biggest issues we saw were because the technology evolved over time and we didn't have everything we needed at the beginning. I remember patients who need a dual chamber pacing and needed a defibrillator. They'd have a single chamber ICD on one side and a dual chamber pacemaker on the other side. We had to worry about device device interactions. But I think some of the most negative effects on patients were our need to successfully defibrillate. And we don't do defibrillation testing very often anymore because the data has shown it's pretty safe and effective. But you know the fact that patients would fail DFT testing and we would then feel obligated to revise the system. And I have a patient who I have a chest X-ray who has, I think two transvenous RV leads. He has two azagous vein leads for lowering defibrillation. He has an epicardial coil, epicardial pacing, rate sensing leads and a transvenous atrial lead. He ultimately got a heart transplant, but I think as we came up with pacing and then CRT and then high DFTs, patients ended up with a lot of intravascular yeah. hardware. Yeah, certainly that patient, it's not MRI compatible. That's true, yeah. <laughs> That would be fair to say. You and I also were very involved in the early development of the sub-QICD. Yeah. You were first author on the IDE trial. And I think that... A lot of people in our generation that saw a lot of issues related to transvenous leads were big proponents of the sub-QICD. That was actually, do you know when that was FDA approved? I looked that up before. Yes, it, it, it was, if I remember correctly, it, it was in 
2012. I think so, it was November of 2012, if I remember. September, correctly. September so, of 2012. Oh, sorry. I'm Don't you love that I get to pimp you on a podcast? All right, so what are the advantages and disadvantages of the sub-Q ICD now? The advantage, as I mentioned, it's the fact that it's a totally extravascular. I think the device senses very well and defibrillates very well. I think that the disadvantages are the fact that it doesn't pace, and I will come back to it in a more so, patients that may benefit from anti-tachycardia pacing, for example, or patients who, who needs bradycardia support, they don't have that. So I think that's certainly a downside to the transvenous, the subcutaneous defibrillator. I think that also we take for granted the implantation technique. I think implantation, it's in, how do you implant that defibrillator? It's extremely important because that it's a reflect on the impedance. If you put the defibrillator to anterior or the lead to, to the left, you may have a low, low impedance, but you have quite a bit of energy shunting out of the heart. So I think that that's one problem. The other problem, I think, in particular to the subcutaneous defibrillator, it's the T-wave oversensing. So unfortunately, it's something that I think makes sense that would be easy to get rid of it. I think in practical, even though we have the filter, even though we are smarter in how we program the device, we still have inappropriate shock in particular due to T-wave oversensing. Yeah, the recent data would suggest that inappropriate shock rate is far lower than it used to be, but still it's very unfortunate when a young patient gets a shock with exercise, for example. Yeah, you know, quite equivalent, I would say, to the transvenous ICD and inappropriate shock for atrial fibrillation. Yeah. I don't think it's much different, actually. Yeah. Well, I think the other obstacles to widespread adoption are the size. You know, I think that's a big factor, particularly in thin patients. But I am a big proponent for this device in young patients. It avoids the long-term issues related to lead implantation. And I'm surprised it's not implanted more often in young patients. But, you know, we still encounter pre-authorization denials from some insurance companies who still consider it to be experimental. I think despite the data that's been published showing it's comparable to a transvenous ICD, we still run into that. It is also true that physician reimbursement's not at the same level as a transvenous device. And I'd hate to think that that is a factor when doctors and EPs consider implanting the sub-Q ICD, but you know, the reimbursement is lower than a transvenous device. There was a concern that the charge times were going to be longer and we'd have more patients with syncope, for example. But it turns out, I think, based on all the data from transvenous devices, that waiting a long time to deliver a shock lowers both inappropriate and even appropriate shocks to let it terminate spontaneously. But another obstacle is just getting anesthesia or doing DFT testing. Can you tell me what you do at Ohio State for anesthesia and are you still performing DFT testing? You know, we use anesthesia for those cases. It doesn't need to be general anesthesia, it can be MAC. We actually, we do, we use MAC, we use quite a bit of local anesthetic. So that's what we, we do. It, there is a class one indication for, you have to, to do DFTs or at least one shock. That's a 
class one indication for SICD. So I'm doing it on almost every patient unless there is a contraindication for it. For example, yeah. a patient who was in atrial fibrillation and was not taking his oral anticoagulation. I think it's... Yeah, I think we routinely do DFT testing still with implant, but I think we've learned over time that low impedances are predictive of success. Do you perform DFT testing during generator changes? Not on everyone, but on some patients that I think that the device or the lead are not anatomically what I wanted to. Yeah. Yes, I do it. Yeah, some so, of the early implants, we were not putting the device as posteriorly and we were not putting them intramuscularly. So that's a good point. I think sometimes I'll even make the pocket a little bit further posterior when I'll do a generator change and then at least check the impedance. You know, you can do impedance with, we have data we published that they, if they bought the impedance, it's less than 95 ohms. The likelihood of success, it's 95% or higher. And if on top of that, you do a PA and lateral chest X-ray and you follow the Praetorian score, you certainly get pretty close to the 95 or higher percentage that when you have five shock, the likelihood of success get pretty close to 100%. Right. It becomes a practical yes. issue. Like if the first shock doesn't work at 65 joules, it's not like the days where you could add a sub-Q array and attach it to the device. So you could put the device more posteriorly perhaps, but you have to look at it from a practical standpoint. Yeah, 100%. There is no tools to decrease uh, other than repositioning. You have only one pin in the header. That's it. If we could get the size down with some other techniques, adding additional leads or some other tricks, different vectors, I think that would potentially help adoption of the sub-QICD. Yeah, I think that two reasons at this point why people may shy away from it. One, it's tunneling. I think yeah. that, as you mentioned, not everyone was trained with tunneling. And the second one, it's TFT testing, which once again, not everyone used to do down to failure yes. testing. Yeah. So it's becoming pretty easy to do. What's the experience with the sub-Q ICD in South America? Is it available? It, yeah, it, it is available in all countries. The adoption is very low. And I think part of the reason is because the sub-Q ICD I think it's more expensive than the transvenous ICD yeah. and cost yeah, it's an issue. Likely, yeah, depending on the country, that, that's probably true. The extravascular with the substernal ICD lead study sponsored by Medtronic was just published in the New England Journal. We were fortunate enough to participate in that, and I was on the steering committee. I have limited experience with implants. We only enrolled one patient, but I was very involved in the development of the lead and the technique to place it there. I think it's important to emphasize that that device during that trial was implanted by electrophysiologists who had extensive training, including cadaver training, animal training, and were scrubbed in with their surgeon who helped them get access to the substernal space. But can you comment a little bit about what you think about that technology? I think we've done few patients here, four patients. I think we've done it in the pre-trial when we were and I wasn't involved that if we will do it in the OR, that we will do the testing 
when the patients were getting surgery for another things like right, you did acute or, testing, but not chronic implants. I think. Yeah, but not a chronic implant. Which, by the way, it's nothing wrong with that. I think that for the subcutaneous ICD, it was done the same way. Many patients have actually both devices implanted and tested both and then kept the transvenous. So I think that there are a few good things about it. I think that one of the things that, as you alluded to, the device size, it's much smaller because now you are under the mass, under the bone. So the energy requirement should be relatively less. And there is a lot of modeling for it. You know, one concern I may have, it's the fact that now an infection may be a mediastinitis, and I didn't see a significant problem in actually on your publication. So maybe more theoretical than practical the consideration. Well, I think like anything, there's going to be a risk of infection, and these may, may be more difficult to manage, but it does seem to be feasible. Once you get under that substernal space, it's a lot of fat. Yeah, it's not very difficult if done properly with fluoroscopy to take a tunneling tool, as long as you hug the back of the sternum and don't get too close to the right ventricle to place a lead. And it does require significantly lower defibrillation energy. And if there's not too much fat between the pericardium and the sternum, then you can capture the heart to provide ATP and Brady pacing. So yes, of course. Um, I think the big question is how many people particularly if, you know, recent grads, for example, in EP are going to be comfortable going in a space where we never had been before. Yeah. No, again, it's another step that remains to be seen. As you mentioned, I think training, it's everything. If people are well-trained and also there, there are training by the manufacturer, I think that should be okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember in the late 80s, I was a medical student at your stomping grounds at The Ohio State University. And I remember getting special ordered ICDs that were custom made for individual patients and having to wait weeks for these to to be delivered for epicardial implants. Yeah, they were made at Pittsburgh, actually, pretty close to Fog Chapel. And they they will be made on demand. And sometimes patients will wait in the hospital five, six weeks to have their device delivered. Yeah. Yeah. So things are better. Things are better. Well, listen, it's great talking to you. Great to hear your experience with the evolution of the defibrillators over the past 30 years. You know, any other comments or thoughts? Yeah, I I, I do have actually. I think that we went from one wire on the transvenous to two wires and now to by V. I think by V at this point or left bundle eight area pacing with defibrillator which I have a little bit of concern of the pullback from the apex on the fibrillation. So I yeah. think if you implant in that area, probably would be a good idea to test those patients, at least at the beginning. I, I think that as one of the features in the fibrillators, so to treat patients, at this point, patients with New York Heart Association class 3, EF between 25 and 45% and narrow QRS, but you know, when you have a defibrillator that can give that therapy, you may be more inclined to use it in patients who are not as sick and they may have some benefit. Of course, all that needs to be tested with nice. And the last thing I will say that I think doesn't deserve the 
doesn't, we don't look at it as much, it's the battery. I think the battery on the devices, the defibrillators were three or four years. And now we can even get up to 17 or 18 years on a defibrillator. And the reason for that, I think it's that we don't call it end of life when the battery gets 70% of the battery use because the last portion of curve may be unpredictable. But now that you can get up to the 90% of the battery usage and very good software on the devices, that's why the longevity of the defibrillator, it's probably four times what it used to be when yeah. we first start implanting. It's yeah. really good. Now, I liked your comment about physiological pacing and your concern about taking the coil and not putting it in the apex, because in the early days when we did a lot of defibrillation testing, how apical we were was really important to get successful defibrillation. And even companies would compete to get the coil a little bit closer to the tip to gain a few more millimeters. So if we Integrated that, bipolar versus dedicated right. bipolar. And I, and I do think that if we start doing that, we'll have to go back to some defibrillation testing. Yeah, I agree. As always, it's awesome talking to you. So it's, it's great to see and talk to you too. I want to remind everybody to try to join us on Thursday, November 10th from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern time for another great debates and updates. Thank you. Thank you. Great to see you, Raul. Thank you. Great to see you, Brad. We'd like to thank Dr. Knight and Dr. Weiss for their participation in this podcast today. For more information about EP Lab Digest, please visit eplabdigest.com. Thanks for listening.